according to His promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved... Well, you can test the summary, can't you? We have the two or three, so I guess we're here. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 9 as we get started this morning. John 9, passage I thought we were going to be in last week until... uh, Folks reminded me that we had some details out of chapter 8 we hadn't wrapped up yet. So we have new material tonight. Episode 5 in the last Judean and Perean ministry from John chapter 9, the man born blind. As he, as Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's so much doctrine in these first introductory verses. Let's take time for silent prayer, making sure we're humble before the authority of God's truth, and we'll jump right into the passage, shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing we have this morning to assemble together. Father, we pray for uh, clarity of thought. We ask for distractions to be set aside. We thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. There's a lot to glean out of here, and really it takes up the entire chapter, verses 1 through 41. Um, A lot of it, though, is beneficial in that it helps us to sort through our uh, prejudices, our preconceived ideas, what we think is the way things should be. The disciples here have a number of assumptions, uh, mainly that, well, there's blindness involved, so it's got to be somebody's fault. Uh, it's his divine discipline. It's something he did. It's something his parents did. Uh, since he was born that way, uh, either he had a, a terrible sinning streak going on uh, in the womb, or uh, evidently maybe this was something his parents had done. So This is where their uh, concern came in, and really it's a question as old as the book of Job. Remember when Job's accusers knew that, well, you know, the righteous don't suffer, so you have to have done something. It's your fault. What did you do? And they want Job to confess his guilt. Well, Job didn't have any guilt. It was undeserved suffering. And the idea of undeserved suffering is um, an element that humanity struggles with. Even born-again believers with some teaching will still from time to time feel that undeserved suffering is wrong, that somehow that's just not right, because we wouldn't do it. <laughs> it's, it's not in our human perspective to allow the unrighteous or the righteous to suffer. So there's a lot to glean out of here, and we're going to do it in about eight major points. Uh, first point, though, kind of a summary for the entire thing. What does this episode demonstrate? Point one, the man born blind episode. And we're going to have a shorter title for The Man Born Blind. It's, uh, we'll probably say it about a billion times in the, in the next few weeks. But The Man Born Blind episode, the John 9 episode, demonstrates how one person's test can provide instruction to a multitude of individuals. There are so many characters in this chapter who need to learn the lessons that the Lord has. The Man Born Blind is only one character in the drama only one individual and he'll learn some things certainly but the disciples are going to learn some things the uh the crowds the family uh the pharisees could if they were humble learn some lessons uh at the end of the day though they won't they're they're too entrenched in their uh in their way of thinking they're more blind than he ever was and that's what should become pretty obvious through the process of this study All right, we've read down through verse 3 that it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then the outgrowth from that, we must work. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There's a lot of truth in here, and this is the opportunity. And you wonder uh, at some point, you know, had he encountered him prior than this? I mean, he's gone to Jerusalem every year of his life. He, uh, you would think that maybe he came across this this beggar at some point of time, but either he never, they never crossed paths, or 
Uh, they did encounter one another, and yet the, uh, it was not the will of the Father to heal him of this blindness until this precise moment. Remember, uh, we don't like to think in these terms, but when we are under physical health testing, uh, there are times that are too soon to be healed, too soon to have the test uh, brought to a conclusion, too soon to, uh, to provide a remedy to a situation because not all the lessons have been learned yet or not the maximum glory has yet been achieved. And uh, this is where really our finite humanity has to step back and say, all right, Lord, you know better than we do. You know better than we do when we find out about somebody with cancer or we find out somebody with this or that or other things going on. And we think that, well, this test is taking too long. No, that's human disagreement with the divine prerogative. He establishes the boundaries. So when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied clay to his eyes. This is pretty unique of all the miracles that he did. He could have just healed the man just with a word, just saying, okay, you can see now, have a nice day. But he does different methodology on different occasions. And uh, some folks make jokes about it or they wonder... If, uh, you know, this is where some different denominations came from and different traditions. Um, but there are principles to be learned here, and I find them to be very instructive. And since this whole chapter is one of instruction, I want to focus in that regard. So he, uh, he spits on the ground, he makes some mud, some clay, and, uh, and then provides the instructions. Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went away and washed and came back. Seeing, now we usually think of sent there with reference to the man with a clay on his eyes that he was sent to uh, this pool. But I think if we back up a bit and remember that uh, sent actually appears up in verse four, we must work the works of him who sent me. That there's more in view than just simply the man getting healed. That there is the son being obedient to the work that the father has for him, and the work on this day includes healing this man. All right, so let's break it down then. Point two, instruction opportunity number one. The first folks that have a chance to learn anything are the disciples. This is even before the, the blind man himself gets to learn anything. So instruction opportunity number one is for Jesus' disciples, verses one through five. The man born blind, he gets to learn some things in verses six and seven. You can call him Anna if you want. Anablepsis. We're going to talk about my nickname for him just because I got tired of typing man born blind in, in all the notes. But before we get to his lessons, which come in verses 6 and 7, we have the disciples. They get to learn in verses 1 through 5. Uh, his neighbors and associates, uh, they get to learn in verses 8 through 12. The Pharisees have their Bible class in verses 13 through 17, and they don't do well there. And then uh, the parents of the, of the man born blind... Um, their lesson comes in verses 18 through 23. Then we have the uh, follow-up lesson. Man born blind comes back for uh, instruction opportunity number six in verses 24 through 34. And then the final instruction opportunity number seven is the man born blind yet again, his third time now to be in Bible class. And he learns about the blindness of the Pharisees in verses 35 through 41. Interestingly enough, in some of these occasions of learning, the people doing the learning are not the people being spoken to, but they are overhearing. They are in the presence of. They are observing somebody else's test. And you and I can learn when our brothers and sisters blow it. And we can learn through their failure to learn. In some ways, uh, in fact, that's kind of kind of a smart thing to do. All right. Um, not that we want, I don't want to see anyone fail, and I don't want to see myself fail, but if, uh, if my brother's going to fail anyway, I might as well learn from watching him fail <laughs> and make sure that I don't fail. And then in the process, I have a greater heart attitude to restore him and love him and, and see the, uh, the change of thinking there. All right. So the disciples are going to learn some things here in verses 1 through 5. The first thing, though, is they're starting with an assumption. And assumptions are the biggest obstacles to actually learning anything because you think you already know something. And here's what we see. They think they already know something. So subpoint A, the disciples were under the false teaching perspective. And either they received it formally or they just assumed it. Or they picked it up over the years. And, you know, there's some impressions we get. And we're not really sure. Well, where did I learn that? That's not right. The disciples were under the false teaching perspective that all physical infirmities 
were consequences of sin. And that's just a false view. It goes all the way back to the beginning. This was featured in the book of Job and elsewhere. All physical infirmities were the consequence of sin. So if something bad is going on, uh, something health-related, something financially-related, something in your marriage, something in your family, whatever, if something bad is happening, then we automatically assume that, oh, we're being punished or we're being disciplined or we must have done something. We've deserved this. And that's the assumption they make. Who sinned? They didn't ask, is there sin? Did anybody sin? They just, they're, they're convinced that somebody sinned. They just want to lock in, well, who was it? Because it's unthinkable to them that this disease would not be the consequence of sin. You know, if, if the Lord was maybe half as sarcastic as I am, his response might have been something like, Adam and Eve sinned. Deal with it, right? It's the condition of fallen humanity. Who sinned? Adam and Eve sinned. And so there's sickness in this world. There's blindness in this world. Bad things happen. And not everything that happens is a direct consequence for personal behavior. In any event, this is their uh, assumption. Now, in some cases, it's true, which we give you under subpoint one now. Some blindness was an application of divine discipline. That very well could be the case in certain places. Sometimes blindness was an application of divine discipline. Fairly common, not only in the Old Testament, we start to see it in the book of Acts as well in the New Testament times. And, uh, well, you ought to know all of these pretty much. Genesis 19.11, Deuteronomy 28. Better double check those verses, that doesn't seem right. And uh, 2 Kings 6, verses 18 and 19, passage makes me laugh every time. And Acts 9.8, Acts 13.11. So let's look at these, starting with Genesis 19.11. This is the uh, first discipline. I think this is grace in action because this is in Sodom. And perhaps if they would have responded at this point of time, perhaps there may have been a repentance. We know from uh, the Gospels that uh, there was potential for Sodom to repent. Some... uh, Jesus-type miracles could have been done, like had been done in Capernaum or in uh, uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida, those places. If those miracles had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. And uh, we don't know what, in terms of, in the Father's wisdom, what uh, positive volition could have led to those miracles and could have led to that repentance status. We just know that it was a possible what-if that Jesus spoke of. Now, in Genesis 19, uh, the angels are going in there to scout out the city and to redeem, to rescue the righteous, Lot, his wife, their children. And um, meanwhile, the men, the uh, Sodomites, they see strangers coming in and they want to have their way with them. And so... um, They call out to Lot and they say, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. This, of course, the world today denies what Sodom was all about, but the language is is pretty plain. That's what Sodom was all about. And um, Lot uh, tries to stop him, even offering his virgin daughters in a horrible substitute opportunity. I've never understood that, but that's (laughs) one of my questions I'm going to ask when I get to glory. And then, uh, but here's what happens. Uh, Lot, in spite of himself, uh, doesn't deserve rescue, but the Lord's rescuing him because Abraham was praying for him. And uh, so the men, these would be the angels in verse 10, reached out uh, their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. So there's an example, divine discipline uh, of blindness that's administered in this case, through the agency of the angels, the angelic uh, messengers there. Over to Deuteronomy 28. This is what I suspect is a typo, because I don't normally list verses in, in backwards order. On the screen it says verses 28 through 27. Maybe I was feeling very uh, Hebrew that day. and said, let's read from right to left. Deuteronomy 28. Yeah, let's go ahead and make that through 37. That takes us down to the end of the uh, down through the end of the uh, paragraph, 28 through 37. 
part of the uh, promises, not only blessings, but cursings. Now, this is a feature of Israel in their covenant relationship as a nation before the Lord, as a nation. They are subject to national blessings for national obedience. They're also subject to national cursings for national disobedience. And a nation that's largely obedient, that doesn't mean that you don't have, of course, your unbelievers scattered here and there, and you don't have, there is going to be negative volition in every day and age. But if the general trend, if the overall hunger for truth is, is what it is, and then a nation sets itself up for blessing. As, as dark as our nation may be headed for, we still have 110 churches on our uh, database that we pray for on Wednesday mornings, and I appreciate that. All right, so we read here about the blessings, 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 the cursings, cursings, cursings. And um, some of the things that happen, of course, in the cycles of discipline include defeat and war and famine and, and things of that nature. Uh, verse 25 says, or verse 23, even, uh, if, if you want to read through all of this, uh, shutting up of rain, drought, uh, crop failures, these are all indicators that uh, the Lord is not pleased with a particular nation. Uh, the Lord will smite you with boils. So uh, epidemics, disease that uh, sweeps through a nation is an indicator. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have to be divine discipline. It could just be the effects of the fall. But whenever it happens, a nation better evaluate to make sure that they are pleasing to the Lord and and uh, that they're not under the hand of his of his wrath. Verse 28 says, The Lord will smite you with madness. <laughs> it's called the evening news. Just uh, you watch it and you wonder what kind of insanity is this. With blindness and bewilderment of heart. Everybody's wondering, well, what's going to happen next? And you will grope at noon as the blind man gropes in darkness, and you will not prosper in your ways, but you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually with none to save you. Anyway, the rest of this gets pretty gruesome of uh, the women ravaged and the children abused and different issues here. Finally, concluding in verse 37, you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among the people where the Lord drives you. So, yes, blindness can be divine discipline, but it doesn't necessarily have to be always Divine discipline. Over to Second Kings chapter six. Second Kings chapter six. Another episode where blindness is inflicted, but it becomes instructive. It's an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to understand grace in some respects. So here in Second Kings chapter six, Samaria is under siege, and. Um, We read here, this is where Elisha's servant thinks that they're surrounded and he says, no, actually you got it backwards. We've got them surrounded. We got them right where we want them. <laughs> and um, so he answers, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. What I love about this chapter is that it parallels or it contrasts spiritual blindness with physical blindness because at the beginning of this chapter Elisha's servant was was blind to the spiritual realities he didn't know that the angels were there he didn't know that there was spiritual protection all he could see were the problems couldn't see the provision so Elisha prayed and said O Lord I pray open his eyes that he may see and the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire were all around Elijah. So, Elisha. So they, they're, they're fine. They're not in danger. And anytime we're faced with testing, one of the first things we want to make sure is that our eyes are open to see the lessons we're supposed to be learning through this process. If we don't learn anything from it, what's the point in going through it? What's the point in facing the difficulty? Why have the test? So then they came down to him. Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And uh, now he doesn't just say, Okay, now they're all blind. Let's go kill everybody. I like what happens. Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me. I will bring you to the man whom you seek. So he brought them to Samaria. <laughs> all right. And... Uh, 
Anyway, it's interesting the way this happens. So they came into the city of Samaria. Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. See, they have an opportunity to learn something too. Obviously, if Elisha just killed them all, well then, they're not going to learn anything. So they opened their eyes. The Lord opened their eyes. They saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. So then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? He asked the question twice. I I think it communicates some uh, eagerness on his part. (laughs) Right? Well, you know, if, if the Lord wanted them dead, he could have struck them dead. But instead he struck them blind. He didn't strike them dead, he struck them blind. And then he brought them here. And then he opened their eyes. So he's got some kind of plan, and the plan is not just to kill them. It's like the, the, the dumb griping that the, the Exodus generation came up with. And, oh, you know, God just brought us out of Israel or out of Egypt so that he could kill us here in the wilderness. Well, how stupid is that? He could have killed them there in Egypt. Why waste his time parting the Red Sea and bringing them out of Egypt with all the plagues and miracles and all that other stuff just so he could kill them in the, in the wilderness? So there's a purpose, and the purpose is not killing them. So he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. And the marauding bands of Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. You know, it's, it's an interesting provision here when they went back and reported uh, those Gentiles learned some things that maybe they didn't understand right away. <laughs> but they knew there was something different going on there because they were struck blind and they could have all been killed. And instead, they had their sight re- restored. They had food prepared. They, had, they were feasted. They were sent home. Uh, it's an amazing opportunity. And sometimes, I, I kind of view this as a pattern. If, if um, we've got some unbelievers that are rather hostile to us personally or hostile to Christ or or what have you, then uh, maybe the last thing in the world they expect is some, uh, some grace, a meal they didn't deserve, or uh, uh, the, the, the good treatment of, of believers to unbelievers. Anyway, there's a lot of information there. But it's an interesting chapter. It shows the contrast between physical blindness and spiritual blindness, and it does demonstrate that uh, sometimes blindness is an application of divine discipline. Now, that's not simply to limit itself to the Old Testament. Acts 9 and Acts 13 are both examples. In Acts 9, uh, Paul is the one that's blinded on the Damascus Road. Saul got up from the ground and thought his eyes were open. He could, Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. Now you wonder if this is not the reverse of what had happened in the chapter we just read. The Damascus is that region of the Arameans where they were the blind folks were returned to. And so he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So there's discipline and, and uh, he has time to cycle through his uh, knowledge, Old Testament knowledge, and start to bring it into conformity with the recognition that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah that the Old Testament speaks of. Last example coming from Acts 13. I think it's worthwhile to consider church age passages as well. People ask, well, does God ever do that today? Does God ever strike people with afflictions today as a matter of divine discipline? Absolutely. And so um, here's Elymas, the magician. We're learning some things about Bar-Jesus and the things here in the Sunday Night Acts series. And uh, now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. So absolutely, there are times when blindness is divine discipline. However, not always. It's also true, under point two, sometimes blindness was a consequence of demonic affliction. Sometimes blindness was a consequence of demonic affliction. Matthew 12:22 is the obvious one. I think we can add Luke 7:21 to that as well. Sometimes blindness was a consequence of demonic affliction. There were physiological symptoms of demonism. And oftentimes what the people needed, they didn't need healing, as it were, any medical treatment to their bodies. They, they needed a, a, an expulsion of the demonic influence out of their bodies, and then the, the physical uh, infirmity was gone. So, do we say that was a healing? No, it was, a, it was a, a casting out of a demon. The healing was kind of a side effect. 
Matthew 12:22. But you know, try to explain this to a cosmos wisdom doctor today, <laughs> who thinks that the answer to everything is pharmacological. Matthew 12:22. Maybe it's spiritual. All right. So a demon-possessed man, blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. The issue there that it was demonism at work. The crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? And the Pharisees heard this. They said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. We've covered that already. I think it is a, a standard tactic. I think the Pharisees were guilty of it. I think people today are guilty of it. A lot of the sensationalism of, of charismatic churches and, and the full-scale Pentecostal holy rollers that get involved in these healing ministries. Well, what caused, what is it really going on? And are some of the sicknesses actually demon-induced so that they can be demon-cleansed and, and come up with some kind of a pseudo-demon glory? The other passage there being Luke seven twenty-one. However, not all blindness is divine discipline nor demon activity. Sometimes it's undeserved suffering. Point three, the assumption of personal guilt does not edify. Job 4 and verse 7. The assumption of personal guilt does not edify. Why do we go to that assumption? It could be discipline, sure. But it could just as well be undeserved suffering. So why assume either? Why assume one or the other? Leave it as an open question. Leave it as an opportunity for fellowship with the person you're, you're ministering to or for yourself if you're the one encountering the difficulty. Job 4, 7. You, you realize when, um, when, when your brother or your sister communicates an issue, it, it's a ministry opportunity. And, and it's a ministry opportunity at that moment. It's also a ministry opportunity perhaps for subsequent moments. Um, beyond that, it's, uh, I think sometimes we, we just we're very quick to say, oh, well we'll, well, we'll pray about that. Okay. When? How about now? <laughs> All right. Uh, you mean with me or for me? You're going to go home and pray later on or you want to sit down and pray right now? What time should I come over for those prayers? All right, let's pray together. But beyond prayer, the opportunity to actually explore the Scriptures, to actually search the circumstances of what's going on, to uh, evaluate what's being learned. Somebody says, oh, well, you know, I'm faced with something, whatever. Um, marriage problem, my wife hates me, or something. Oh, really? Okay. Well, why do you think that is? What are you learning through this process? What do the scriptures say about that? And using it as the, the conversation opportunity to fellowship in the things of the Lord. But just the assumption of personal guilt saying, well, that's probably because, you know, your wife hates you because you're a jerk. <laughs> it's your fault. You're carnal. This is God's discipline on your life. You know, how, how does that edify? So uh, in Job 4, the assumption comes here in verse 7. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? Just the evidence of the tough things you're going through is testi all the testimony you need. Bad things don't happen to good people, so what are you, what are you hiding? What would you really do? It's the assumption of guilt. And how does that edify? And how does that edify? He goes on, according to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Okay. And now that is true so far as it goes. You do reap what you sow. However, that's not all the truth. There's an element of truth in that, but it fails to observe the additional items of truth that encompass undeserved suffering. Also, that encompass suffering by association. See, all these things that happened to Job, they also happened to Job's wife. I mean, the loss of children, loss of family, loss of wealth, loss of... We don't know that she had boils or whatever that Job had physically, but um, she, she went through quite a bit. Was this her fault? And, and it's interesting. They never assume it was her fault. They always assume it was Job's fault. And yet, isn't she suffering too? What's the reason for her suffering? All right, so let's not make those assumptions. And, and you want to know something. Even to... 
I've, I've, on a couple of occasions, I've been pretty convinced that that divine discipline's at work. <laughs> I mean, it's been pretty obvious. You're, you're watching people. You're watching their consequences. You're watching their decisions. You're seeing them turn their back on the Lord. You're seeing them encounter consequences of turning their back on the Lord. And, you know, I'll bet next month's paycheck is divine discipline. Now, does that mean I have to go and point that out to them? Or can I come alongside and encourage them and take them to some scriptures and see if maybe they they uh, acknowledge it themselves? <laughs> and uh, if they, you know, after uh, a couple of times and some prayers and some visits, they say, you know what, Pastor, I... This is this is divine discipline. This is this is the consequence of what I've been doing. Okay. At that point, I'll say, you know what? I think you're right. I think that's what you're looking at. But it, oh, it's much better if they if they actually contribute that idea first, <laughs> and then I can simply agree and not not be preaching at them. Anyway, different techniques for different circumstances, depending on as you're led to speak or not speak, and and so forth. But to come in with a condemning approach does not edify. I know that. That's the approach here of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. All right. So if it's not discipline, if it's not blindness, what might it be? Well, point B, it might be by association. Children face consequent circumstances because of their parents' sins. I want you to notice something, though. They do face consequent circumstances because of their parents' sins, but not divine discipline. Not divine discipline. Children face consequent circumstances. I mean, if the father's a drunk and and plunges into debt and ruins his his family's uh, finances and and they lose their house and um, all kinds of stuff, are, are the children affected by all that? Absolutely, they're affected by all that. The father's mercy, though, will come alongside and, and provide a measure of. of uh, grace and a measure of protection. They're going to face some consequent circumstances, but they're not the objects of the discipline. The father's the object of the discipline. And their consequent service, uh, circumstances are additional aspects of discipline upon the father's soul. And so, yes, there is an aspect of the sins of the father that we have in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy and elsewhere. The sins of the father, visiting the sins of the father upon the children in the third to the third and the fourth generation. Let's be clear on something. Exodus 20. With respect to idolatry of serving false gods, you shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. So there are consequent circumstances that are observed. We call this cursing by association. Notice also, though, um, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. So as this goes on, yes, the iniquity is visited. However, there are also then, in this case, up to four generations, there is the ongoing hatred. The children have a hatred. The grandchildren develop a hatred. The great-grandchildren develop a hatred. In each generation, they are the generations of the haters, of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So any particular generation can turn it around. If the father uh, hates the Lord and is under divine discipline and there's consequences uh, in the son, it may be that the son responds to those consequences turns it around, gets saved, walks in the light, breaks that uh, four-generation curse, as it were, and starts the chain for the thousand generations to follow. There, uh, Of course, some people dismiss this as poetry, but I do believe the fullness of time is 1,000 generations of those who love Jesus Christ. And what a, what a wonderful time that's going to be in the new heavens and on the new earth. When you go over to Ezekiel, we taught this pretty extensively in the Ezekiel series years ago. Ezekiel 18. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. 
see, Israel, by this time, developed a proverb. We read it in verse 2. The word of the Lord came to me saying, and I'm more and more considering this as a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, who is the word. God the Son, the word of Jehovah, came to me saying, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? And here's their proverb. The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, it's not our fault. It's, you know, let's blame our parents. Kind of like Freudian uh, psycho- uh, psycholo- uh, psychology, right? Psychotherapy. It's, it's not your fault. It's the way you were raised. It's what your parents did to you when you were young and you were scarred and you were emotionally impacted and so on and so forth. Well, you know, there's a, there's a, a certain amount of uh, justification then. We can say, well, it's not my fault. I didn't do anything. Couldn't help it. It's what, what our parents did. Yeah, we're not accountable. We're, we're victims. See, so the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. And, and, and that's so when they say, well, you know, our nation's being carried away. There's already 10,000 that got carried away to Babylon. The rest of us are under threat of, of deportation or death. Uh, man, boy, our, our parents' generation, they really blew it. Our grandparents, oh, they were horrible. <laughs> so the Lord's going to clear up a, little bit of this misconception here. He says, no, each generation's accountable. Each person's accountable. You reap what you sow. And if your parents were total heathens, you turn it around in your day. So, um, down to verse 19 then. Uh, Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for their father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for their son's iniquity. The the righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. In other words, accountability is generational and immediate. Uh, The verses prior to that talk about, well, what happens if you have a, a godly man, but he's got this horrible son? Or what happens if you've got a horrible... Uh, a horrible man, but he's got a godly son. He goes both directions on this. And the father says, nope, each generation is accountable. So the divine discipline, what I'm trying to say is that children will not be under divine discipline because of what their parents have done. They might be facing consequences of what their parents have done, but it's not divine discipline for their sake. It's undeserved suffering for their sake, divine discipline to their parents. Does that make sense? Okay. Jesus taught that some afflictions are not divine discipline, but rather undeserved suffering for the manifestation of God's faithfulness. That's the whole point here in John 9. It wasn't that this man sinned. It wasn't that his parents sinned. So that the works of God might be made known. Some afflictions are undeserved suffering for the manifestation of God's faithfulness. And even the term undeserved suffering is a little bit of a misnomer. I know some pastors don't like it. Um, because ultimately, what do we deserve as fallen creatures in Adam? Well, we deserve the lake of fire, right? So, but as a concept, to, to separate it from deserved discipline or divine discipline, we have the undeserved suffering. That's not the immediate consequence of, uh, of personal actions. That's what we have here. So it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him, so that God's faithfulness can be manifested. So that God's faithfulness can be manifested. A lot of times when I tell people I'm praying for them, I'll say, well, I'll join you in your prayers. And together we will see in what manner the Lord chooses to show his faithfulness. And I like phrasing it that way because... Uh, it at least gets people thinking that the Lord may not choose to demonstrate his faithfulness in exactly the way they would like him to choose to demonstrate his faithfulness. Uh, they may want him to, uh, to heal them of whatever disease. He may be taking them home to glory 
In which case, he's still going to manifest his faithfulness. He's going to manifest faithfulness through dying grace and through lessons learned and everything else that takes place. Is he any less faithful when, when the outcome of the test is physical death? No, he's just as faithful. So I like telling folks, I say, well, I'll join you in your prayers and together we will see what manner the Lord chooses to demonstrate his faithfulness. Because I know he's going to be faithful in whatever the provision is. So let's stop to consider. Um, And at the end of the day, we may have to just simply say, you know what? We don't know what the purpose is. We won't find out to glory. Maybe not even then. Maybe by then it won't matter anymore. As far as we have all this, well, why, why, why? Well, if he wants to make that clear, he can do so. But he's certainly not obligated to do so. And he's not answerable to us uh, where we can put our foot down like Job tried to do to say, you know, explain your, uh, your thought process here. That is not what we're entitled to. Now, when you do recognize that God is at work, it's motivation for us to continue working. Point D, the recognition of the Father's ongoing work is a motivation for our own continued working. In some cases, the tests we face are good reminders that God is still working in us for our growth, for our maturity, removing our rebellion, removing uh, our pride. And so rather than gripe, moan, and complain about bad things that are happening, be thankful that, uh, that your preparation for glory is still a work in progress. So we see this in verse 4. We see this in verse 5. We must work the works of Him who sent me. See, the works of God are now being displayed. Well, now how does God normally, how does God manifest His works? Through us. The Father's at work through us, both the will and do of His good pleasure. Did you read that uh, news clipping that um, I think Stephen Anderson brought in the other day talking about the, the hostages that were rescued in, in uh, Colombia? And um, somebody in the paper had called it a miracle that they got all the hostages uh, alive away from the, the FARC terrorists there in Colombia. And then uh, there's some mocker some Second Peter chapter three mocker that we're surrounded by, um, you know, it tells us in Second Peter three that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking and uh, writing letters to the editor in the Dallas Morning News, and uh, they they mocked the miracle. They said, "Oh yeah, yeah, some miracle," using helicopters and guns and soldiers. Still a miracle, absolutely, it's still a miracle. So, uh, in any event, in fact, I think it's more miraculous that he uses such imperfect people. You know, if he was, if he was uh, not quite as impressive as our God truly is, then maybe he'd have to do a few more divine actions himself. But the fact that he uses imperfect people, to me, just testifies to how omnipotent he actually is. No, he's working, and that motivates us. We must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as we have the opportunity, let us do with our might what our hand finds to do. If he's placed an assignment before us, then we must be about it. And it's motivation, especially when we become convicted of the shortness of our time here. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When we're convicted of the shortness of our time, when we're convicted in the shortness of our time, and I think that... uh, comes and goes. I think different believers get different convictions at different stages where they uh, realize the shortness of the time. Maybe they're looking ahead and they're looking back and they're kind of evaluating that, hmm, I think I've, uh, I think I've got more days behind me than I've got in front of me. Okay. Well, we all could say that, can't we? Because we're not promised tomorrow. <laughs> Why don't we start living like it? Let's start living like whatever days are behind us. Today's it. Yeah. If you know that tonight you're standing at the judgment seat of Christ, are you going to uh, use this afternoon in an edifying fashion or are you going to blow it off? All right. So the conviction happens. And these are all the things the disciples are going to learn. Now, at point three, we have the man born blind. What is he going to learn out of this? So point three takes us to instruction opportunity number two, the man born blind. 
the man, the Tuflos man, is called Ha Tuflos, the blind one, and uh, Ek Ganetu uh, from birth, from his genesis, from his uh, begetting. What is he going to learn? Let's look at verses 6 and 7 again. Well, I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay? Now, has the man said anything yet? No, he hasn't said a thing. He's just sitting there. Um, the disciples asked a question. Jesus answered. The man didn't say anything. But the disciples asked. Jesus answered. They didn't even speak to him. Jesus didn't speak to him. All of this doctrine was designed for the disciples. But do you think that man was listening? I know he was listening because we see some of the titles that he has for the Lord here shortly. And so when he said this, he doesn't ask the man, do you want to get healed? He doesn't ask the man, what do you think? Did your parents sin? Did you sin? What's going on? Didn't ask any of that. Didn't even talk to him. Spits on the ground. Makes clay. Starts applying clay to his eyes. So you're blind. You're sitting there. I think of what Shirley's going through with her mother. I mean, blind, deaf, not knowing what's going on. And yet all of a sudden someone touches you and... How uh, dissettling is that? And then they start applying clay to your eyes. <laughs> Probably your eyelids, I'm guessing, at that point. And, uh, and then saying to him, go. Wash in the pool of Siloam. And this is a go command. Similar to uh, Jonah's go command in a lot of ways. Right? Now, was it the will of God for this guy to get a sight back? Sure it was. But not just simply by decree or by a word or by a thought or waving a wand or whatever. The miracle was intended to be accomplished, but it was intended to be accomplished in the obedience of the one who follows the procedures that were stipulated. And that's what we see here. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went away and washed, came back seeing. Again, no words are spoken. He doesn't say, yes, sir. He doesn't say, why should I? He doesn't say, what are you talking about? What are you doing to my eyes? <laughs> or he also doesn't say, who do you think you are? I'm not going anywhere. This is my begging spot. Some of these guys around town, by the way, are extremely territorial. If they have a prime corner or intersection or stoplight or what have you, that's their turf. That's their spot. And they start milking it for what they can get. Um... You know, he doesn't argue, doesn't dispute. He obeys. He's called and he goes. So what are we looking at here? What does he learn? All right. First of all, let's eavesdrop or let's remind ourselves of what he knows and what he's heard. First of all, so point A, the man born blind heard the title rabbi. He heard the disciples say, rabbi. Did this man sin or did his parents sin? He heard the question. He knew that the man in front of him was titled Rabbi. They don't say Rabbi Jesus. They don't say, they don't say who his name is at this point. They just call him Rabbi. Right? Look back to verse 2. The disciples asked him, Rabbi. So they don't give him a name. He gives his own name when he says, I am the light of the world. So the man born blind heard the title rabbi, verse 2, and the testimony as the light of the world in verse 5. And that's all he knew. That's all he knew. Not much. In fact, it seems kind of sketchy. But what it was was sufficient for his obedience. He didn't need to know more than that. When he was told to go, he got up and went. I find that to be interesting. There's huge debates going on right now, too, by the way, in, in, uh, in evangelical circles, in the in journals and articles that are written and books that are written and so forth. And one of the latest deals, probably since 99, about the last nine years or so now, the, the question is, well, what, uh, how much needs to be taught? How much needs to be known before salvation in order to be saved? And it goes back and forth. And, and you know, um, there's a place for that. And that should be explored. The Scripture should be searched. And, and we should, I mean, we want to have a clear gospel. 
we want to be effective when we tell this lost and dying world that, uh, that, that Christ died and was rose again and, and, and what the provision is there for eternal life. Um, do I want to, uh, do I want to give them the story of, uh, Daniel in the lion's den? Do I want to tell them about Noah and the ark? Do I want to, uh, do I want to tell them about, uh, Solomon and his wisdom and cutting the baby in half? Are those things necessary for the gospel? Uh, I think, yeah, I think that we could take those out and still have a gospel message. You know, we don't have to teach all 1,189 chapters. So what is it that we communicate when we're told to go, therefore, and make disciples? What is the content of our good news message? What is our approach? And, and like I said, there's a place for this. I don't, I don't mock anybody that writes on this topic. I don't mock that at all. Even when they come to conclusions that I differ with, I don't mock them. I say, okay, I have a different conviction. Um, I heard a man say once that if, if you don't believe in eternal security, then you, you were never saved to begin with. And I dispute that. I say, I, I think folks get saved and they're completely screwed up on eternal security. Or they're, they're, they don't really understand what rewards are all about. They don't know. There's a lot, a lot of confused people get saved. And then they spend the rest of their life trying to sort out those confusions. <laughs> and they do, and they grow, and they learn things. And um, one of the things I remember was at different times, at, at age 10, at age 12, at age 14, I remember different stages, and I was saved young, I was saved really young, but I remember at, at different points I'd learn something in, in church, and I'd go, oh my goodness, I never knew that. And that bothered me. I'd say, well, wait a minute. How could I have been saved if I didn't know that? And the pastor would say, how could you have known that if you weren't saved? Because <laughs> they have to be spiritually discerned, right? If you're going to start learning these things. So anyway, I, I think I, I disagree with, with pastors that say that if you, if you think you can lose your salvation, then you were never saved to begin with. I think there's a lot of truly regenerate people terrified they're going to lose their salvation. I used to work for a man who was a Nazarene, and he worked hard to hold on to his salvation. And when I had opportunity, I tried to say, you know what? not up to you. <laughs> he saved you. You have eternal life. Anyway, so these are the things. And so we discuss, well, how much do you have to know? Do you have to know that he was born of a virgin? Some people say yes. Some people say no. Do you have to know that he was the son of God? A lot of people say yes. Some people say, you know, they may learn that later. All right. What is it that you have to know? Do you have to know he was born in Bethlehem? Okay. Um, anyway, these are the things you go into, and I guess that's sufficient illustration, but when I go back to this man, what did he know? He knew that they called him rabbi, and he knew that the rabbi testified to being the light of the world. Now, I think, and I'll give this to you also, that he had previously heard that light of the world message already. Um... I'm pretty convinced of that, but we'll we'll break that down for you here. Because in no, in no there's no hint anywhere in this that uh, he had insufficient information. The title of rabbi and the ego amy I am statement, the light of the world, was sufficient. When he was told to go, he went. No more questions. No no wondering. No, uh, it was sufficient information for him to be obedient to the commands that he was under. All right. Now, his instructions. The man's instruction opportunity was an illustration of obedience. Because this wasn't just simply a healing that just passively happened to him as a, a work of, uh, of uh, sovereignty. It was an illustration of obedience. It's kind of interesting. When, when was the power applied? When... Did the miracle take place? When did the divine dunamis, when, when did that happen? When Jesus put the clay on? Or when the man washed the clay off? At which time, of course, Jesus was nowhere around. Or was it a delayed response that the clay was put on with a conditional um, effectiveness? So, what were these instructions? First of all, 
and, and I think this is important, not just for this chapter, but in a lot of other ways. I think this helps as an illustration for salvation. All right. A mechanism was sovereignly designated. A mechanism was sovereignly designated and the procedure was volitionally obeyed. Please write that down word for word. Think about it. Because for all these years of church history, we've had this irreconcilable argument and debate about sovereignty and volition. A mechanism was sovereignly designated. Jesus chose the, to do the spit and the clay and the, uh, the go wash it off mechanism. That's the mechanism. He designed the clay. He designed the spit. He designed the, the procedure. He told them which pool. He didn't say go to the sheep gate. He didn't say go to uh, Jacob's well. He didn't say go to the, the Sea of Galilee, go to the Dead Sea, go to the Mediterranean. He didn't say any of that. He said go to the pool of Siloam. All right. Sovereignly designated. Well, I don't want to go to Siloam. I want to go over here instead. It's not the mechanism. The mechanism is established by sovereignty. And then it's either obeyed or disobeyed. And if you substitute something else for what the mechanism was, that's not obedience. You can't say, well, I kind of obeyed. I went to this other pool. No, wrong pool. Mechanism was go to the pool of Siloam. So anything that's not obedience is, you can't say, well, it was kind of obedience. All right, so a mechanism was sovereignly designated and the procedure was volitionally obeyed. The miracle came into effect, came into effect upon the volitional obedience to the sovereignly designated mechanism. The miracle came into effect. The miracle came into effect. And, you know, some would say that it, the miracle didn't happen until I think the miracle was placed, was put onto his eyes with that condition. That it would only be triggered with the, uh, the obedient response. The miracle came into effect upon the volitional obedience to the sovereignly designated mechanism. And... In a lot of ways, this picture is our salvation, doesn't it? Because I was, I was um, uh, preordained unto eternal life. I was predestined. I was foreknown. I was elect. I was glorified from the foundation of the world. But it did not come into effect until September of 1973 when the mechanism that the Father sovereignly designed, grace through faith, took place. And it took place... You can say on the one hand, it took place before the foundation of the world in the grace eternal plan of God the Father. But the mechanism he put in place didn't happen until September of 1973 at the dining room table in Seattle, Washington. So you see how this comes to play. There's both sovereignty at work and the obedience. Volitional obedience. All right. The... Um, the illustration of this is super. Um, the man does not question who the light of the world rabbi thinks he is. I love this. And I'm already at the top of the hour, so we'll finish with this point and we'll come back to it next week. The man does not question who the light of the world rabbi thinks he is. Right? Like in, back in the previous chapter, the Pharisees were like, who do you think you are? Our father Abraham died. You're not greater than Abraham, or you're not greater than the prophets. The prophets, they also died. Who do you make yourself out to be? That's the arrogant response. The man, you know, he's sitting there minding his own business, begging for money, sitting there blind, not knowing what's going on. And this uh, guy who claims to be a rabbi and says he's the light of the world, he spits and puts mud in his eyes. Well, who do you think you are? What are you smearing this, this clay on my eyes for? What are you doing? See, doesn't question. Nor does he balk at the instructions he's been given. You want me to walk all the way to Siloam? Are you kidding? Do you know how far that is? I'm blind. How am I supposed to get all the way over there? That's too far. Just do it right here. He does not balk at the instructions he's been given. Next week we'll come back and we'll look at this. Are you familiar with, with uh, Naaman the Syrian there in Second Kings chapter 5? And uh, Elisha said, go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And first, Naaman didn't like that. 
You thought, well, that's a waste of time. What's the big deal about the Jordan River? We got waters back in Syria. I should go back home. So we'll we'll be in Second Kings five next week and review that response versus this man's response. It's like night and day. Naaman resisted, and this man immediately obeyed. You want me to go where? Okay, I'm there. <laughs> Not only did he go, I love verse 7 here. So he went away and washed. And that's not where the sentence ends. He went away, he washed, and he came back. He came back seeing. That's right. He had the positive volition to return back. So we'll have more on that. Oh, we got a good start. Appreciate that. And we got a recording, right? This is all being recorded. Amazing, isn't it? I've got to find some way to get my son fired from his summer job so we can have him back on Wednesday mornings. All right. Father, thank you for this day, for the truth of your word, for the privilege that it is to assemble together. And Father, we've got a lot to learn here. Um, the, the, the disciples had lessons. The man born blind had lessons. His parents are going to have some lessons. His neighbors and associates are going to have some lessons. The Pharisees should be learning lessons, but they're not. And uh, there's so much truth in this. I pray that you would uh, open our eyes to uh, what you would have for us to make in our application here. Um, Particularly as a church, as we move forward, we need our eyes open. Uh, the fellow we met last night, the fellow we're going to meet this afternoon, and all these things as we move forward, Father, we want our eyes open to what you're doing so that we can be instantaneously obedient when your instructions are made clear. Father, we, uh, you know where we are. You know our bank account. You know our timeline. You know, uh, you know all these things. We're trusting by faith that you will make your plan known. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.